Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for discerning seekers, where we have all of the community and none of the cult. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. If you're a fan of the show and want to join the conversation, you can subscribe to the Free Your Inner Guru Patreon page. Your subscription includes access to our discourse community, live monthly Zooms, and some pretty cool merchandise. Your Patreon subscription helps keep the show going free of ads and supports me as an independent researcher and creator, for which I am very grateful. I'd love it if you would take a moment to go to patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru and subscribe to support the show. Welcome to episode 95 of Free Your Inner Guru, understanding cycles of abuse at home, work, and that group you're in. We welcome back Shulamit Berlevtov, the entrepreneur's therapist, for a deep dive into individual, organizational, and systemic abuse. Shulamit is a resilience and mindset consultant who uses her background as a trauma therapist to help women identifying entrepreneurs manage their mindset and pilot their emotions so they can overcome the anxiety and isolation of running a business. You may remember Shulamit from our conversation in episode 88, Cult Dynamics and Abusive Intimate Relationships. When we finished, it felt like there was a lot more to cover, so here we are, we're back. My hope for this episode is that it gives you context for your own experience, for the experience of someone you care for, and for the abusive culture and systems we are immersed in, whether we are conscious of it or not. Before we go any further, I don't think I've ever given a trigger warning before, and I don't like them for a couple of reasons. First of all, they can be triggering in and of themselves and put us into a heightened state where we expect to be triggered, and so then we're triggered. It's that good old self-fulfilling prophecy. Secondly, I'm not your parent, here to protect you from challenging topics, otherwise nobody learns and this podcast wouldn't exist. However, this is an episode that might best be consumed in a quiet place with a warm tea or coffee and a journal nearby or on a quiet walk so that you can absorb and reflect at your own rate and pace. I'm told that this is how many of you listen to this podcast, I'm not saying this to turn you off. I just want you to know because I became emotional midway through and we had to take a little break before guiding the conversation into reflecting on what it's like to wake up to abusive relationships in our life and how to use self-compassion to self-regulate so we can engage our creative problem solving and ask for help. I think this is a serious but hopeful conversation and I want to be thoughtful about what your experience may be when you consume it. So I guess I am invoking my protective superpower after all. Like always, if you receive value from this episode, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with others. Follow Free Your Inner Guru and The Entrepreneur's Therapist on Instagram and consider supporting the podcast on Patreon, where you'll have access to the ongoing conversation in our discourse community for as little as $5 a month. And with that, let's begin a conversation with Shulamit Berlevtov. Shulamit, welcome back to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm so glad that we are able to meet again and, and pick up on our part one conversation. There's so much that's going on currently in the world that is just begging to be talked about in, in terms of unhealthy leadership dynamics, cult dynamics, abusive relationships. Yeah, we just couldn't fit it all into our planned part one. There are so many nuances and so many layers. So it's good that we're carrying forward with this. When I was thinking and setting up how to frame this conversation, 
I listened back to our first um, episode and I'm not sure that I'm going to say, oh, if you want this episode to make sense, listen to part one first. But I definitely want to recommend that people go back and listen to it. But what became obvious to me was that we talked a lot about the similarities and that there are similarities in these dynamics and with everything that's happening in society with anti-masking, anti-vaccine, QAnon. But also there is a surge of awareness around cults because largely, like we talk about in part one of the vow and the Nexium trial, but I'm even finding in my own sphere because of my past experience, I am becoming more aware and more connected to fellow survivors of these dynamics. And so my intention for this conversation is to learn, to listen, and to also guide where I'm seeing in my private conversations what might be helpful. And the hole that I think we both knew we left at the end of part one is that we talk about the similarities existing, but then we didn't have time to follow up on how they exist, what it looks like specifically. And so that is what we're here to do today and then see where it goes from there. A good general principle is abusive relationships are abusive relationships independent of the context. The dilemma or the problem we face as a culture is that we see abuse as restricted to the private sphere, families and intimate relationships, intimate partnerships. And we think about domestic violence. In my work with women recovering from stress and trauma, professional women, and now with entrepreneurial women, who many entrepreneurial women have left workplaces that were toxic, that, and the analogy I made that I drew in my mind and then shared with my clients was, again, abuse is abuse, independent of where it occurs. And that, in mm -hmm. fact, what's occurring in the workplace was parallel to what would be called a domestic violent relationship, intimate partnership, but it's taking place at work. And so we call it harassment and bullying when really the net effect is it's abuse and the impact on the survivor is the same as domestic violence, right? That it's traumatizing that it can it, it affects the nervous system, the mind, the emotional well-being in the body, harassment and bullying at work, which is abuse, the same way as domestic violence affects the mind, the spirit, the body, the emotions, the psychology, the brain, all that. And similarly, and this is where you and I connected, around abuse is abuse, even when it's occurring in a high control or cult-like, or, and I'll say in quotation marks, extreme religious group, that it's still abuse. And culturally, we've made the move toward greater understanding of what occurs in, I wish there was just a better name for than domestic violence, but that's the currently recognized term. There's a very wide and deep theory and practice and community of support around survivors of domestic violence and the understanding of the impact of domestic violence on people. I think the next step is expanding that understanding and mapping that onto other instances of abuse because abuse is abuse independent of the context. If I were to paraphrase that, what you're saying is that the, the dynamic is the same, whether it's in your most intimate partner relationship or whether it's out 
in work or society, that it's basically scalable, but the dynamic is just the same. And as I was listening to you, that also explains some of, from a different point of view, why people like me and I think a certain kind of trauma survivor in general had such challenge in the last four or five years with the rise of the narcissist and narcissism into arguably one or more of the most you know powerful positions in the world because you can see the abuse and it's funneled out up well beyond where anyone locally can control it. And I would say that the structures and tactics of power and control exist as an under, like as a, they're foundational to the current culture, at least in North America and Canada and the U.S. I would posit possibly in the Western Europe as well. And that those structures of power and control, like why we see, for example, I know that this is a debate. I think you and I will be of a like mind about it. The classic Canadian example is Mark Lapine. He was the young man who went to Polytechnical Institute in Montreal, separated the women engineering students from the men, made a manifesto against women and feminists, and massacred, assassinated these women engineering students. And if there was not that bedrock upon which this culture is founded of coercive control and male privilege and power, men in distress would not act out in this way. Mm -hmm. And I think that the fact that is how they're acting out is channeled, that it comes out against woman, women, reveals that is a foundation. And so that foundation reproduces itself across the board, as you say, in intimate relationships, but then also in workplaces where it's one to many, in groups of, groups of belonging where it's many to many, in training institutions where it's a teacher to students, in institutions uh, like government and religious institutions and other institutions whose interest is perpetuating themselves. It doesn't have the interest of the individual involved at heart. And then so that the abuses, it, it shows up in these ways, in these places, because it's the foundation. And I would also posit that it shows up also because it's accepted. It's the status quo. Yeah. And so yeah. then it proliferates into arenas like the wellness industry, like the self-help industry, which is always where I'm going to bring things back. Yeah. And it becomes part of the, the culture. And yeah. then when the culture is built around, when you basically need to have the skills of a charismatic leader to, to be ultimately successful, then it becomes a part of what is acceptable and replicates in, in that way as well. And that's yeah. not to say that every single leader in, in say, the self-help field is a toxic narcissist. I would like to keep a focus on saying that the dynamic is pervasive, whether that person yeah. is a toxic narcissist or not. Yes. And it's built and I, into the it's built into the business models. It's built into to all aspects of gathering and and so forth. Yes. And unless the leader has a critique of these structures and tactics of power and control and oppression, then their leadership is going to be vulnerable to reproducing these things. Because if we don't, if we aren't 
choiceful and reflective about what we're doing as leaders. And I hold a leadership position as a therapist. There's power that inheres in the role that I play, whether I as an individual want the power or not, regardless, it's there. As a teacher and as a facilitator of groups, again, it, it inheres in the role. But I'm also, as a leader of a group, as a person holding space for a group, actually taking on a position of power and control. And without having accountability and reflexiveness around my practice of leadership, the, it, that foundation is just going to leak into what I'm doing because it's like, I would say, knee jerk. We, and, and so this is what disturbs me so deeply about many of these leaders is that they don't have their own accountability around their leadership and they don't have a critique of leadership. They believe in this hierarchical older, wiser, knows better thing that just goes along with in the majority male privilege and power. And it just reproduces itself in the wellness area because there isn't a critique of no, if it And if anything, there's an endless cycle of positive feedback because the position of power attracts and creates financial success and the yardstick often is the financial success, which dovetails into a mindset that says, if I'm financially successful, I'm a good person and I must be doing something right. And then you've got group members, audience members, um, community members feeding back a loop of, of largely, if not exclusively, an endless positive feedback cycle. And I want to seize on what you're saying because you're pointing to this closed system of, of feedback loop. And that very closed nature of the system is replicated in relationships of intimate violence, either family or intimate partner, where what happens behind closed doors is it's, we don't talk about it, we don't share it, but it's also, it's self-referential. And so the people to whom you look for reassurance and for, as a parent, as a child to a parent, or as beloved to beloved, your sense of reality is structured by these these attachment figures, but it's self-referential and the tactic to isolate and to demonize the external world and to say, we can't trust them. They don't think like us. They, they're only out to undermine us. They're uh, going to threaten our safety. Groups of control also have this same isolating effect where the mutual feed that, and that just potentiates that closed loop of positive feedback for what's happening in the group. Whereas if anybody were to step outside that the, and looking in, they would see right away. But because you're so in it, it's invisible. So I think we've laid the groundwork in terms of how and where these dynamics show up and where mm -hmm. we each might be encountering them. Let's yep. get into how it exists. Isolation um, is the first one. So that's why I picked up on it. That's one of the first tactics of power and control that is used in abusive relationships. Tell me more. Uh, well, in intimate relationships, for example, the person, I'll say the man, because this is the, the literature developed in the context of heterosexual relationships. And in the vast majority, this is still how it occurs. So I'll use the term man. I'm acknowledging that their same gender intimate partner abuse occurs as well. And there are women who also are abusive to men in intimate relationships and families as well. That said, I'm going to use man. So the man will isolate the woman from her friends and from her family, either by actively telling her that they are not good for the relationship, that they don't like him, that she can't trust them, 
that they're out to break them up or he will undermine her relationship with them by making her look crazy to them, by creating friction with them so that they put more pressure on her to leave him. It's all it's tactics of like isolation from all the support that you might have. They will control the woman's time, what she's doing, so that if she does go out with friends, there are emotional consequences for spending time with friends and family. When she comes home, she gets in trouble or there's all kinds of like emotional or other repercussions for. And so her world just closes down in order to keep peace in the relationship. I'd be curious just with this first factor of isolation to hear how you experienced that in your path with the group experience that you had, if at all. If anything, it occurred to me as quite, quite the opposite because I felt like I had connected and I had connected with a fabulous community of people who I thoroughly enjoyed and, and created lasting relationships with many of them to this day. So it wasn't there, but in the process of either interviews or reviewing my journals and my life, writing my my memoir, what I realized was something that people had said about me and I always resisted was that I was living rather isolated. I had moved across the country. I was away from my family and my longest standing friendships. So even my local longest standing friendships, which would have been at that time, three or four years, it's that I had very good friends but they were new and business consumed me. So right, there's barriers, even though some friendships developed out of my business, but there's a, a there's boundaries around what, and I was very boundaried as far as keeping things separate work and private life. So it's in retrospect that I see that I was isolated, although that wasn't a driver for me. It was an aspect of your experience, but it wasn't the thing that drove it. We can see how, for example, in white supremacist movements and in the Ku Klux Klan, how this is a not politically, but in the dynamics of these groups are similar to what you were experiencing and even extreme religions, because you don't feel isolated. There's a whole community around you. You have deep connections and deep friendships. And Everything is circumscribed within the beliefs that are held by the community of which you are a member. So you don't recognize yourself as being isolated until after the fact when you realize, oh, yeah, there were thousands of us, but we were all self-referential. It was a closed loop. Yeah, there was something playing about the edges of my mind about, oh, I know what it was. I was fending off depression. So I was fending off. I, I was not wanting to go back on antidepressants. And I was wanting to find a different way, which I found. That hasn't changed. It's not like every single thing that ever came out of that experience is bad. That's what makes it nuanced. But going into an experience where you feel like, and it may be, may be true, that I'm not like most of the people around me right now. And that was absolutely fundamentally true. I was a creative in a very transactional world. I was spiritually curious outside of my Roman Catholic upbringing. There's all kinds of threads to feeling like some kind of an outlier. Even though I looked and acted like everybody else, I felt isolated simply for being who I am. And I think that kind of vulnerable, many people I've heard tell stories about how they got into or ended up in relationships that ultimately were abusive is uh, 
there are two factors. One is that abusers will prey. They can identify very clearly vulnerable people and exploit those vulnerabilities, as will some leaders, although, you know, maybe not in your case, because everybody's story is unique, but it is a pattern that in some cases, some leaders will target vulnerable people. And in addition, even without being targeted, when we are seeking, we are vulnerable. Just because of being open, being open and curious, that is, I think I see it as a tremendous strength in people and something that I would choose to spend my time with people who are curious and open. But when I think bottom line, and this has happened so many times, not just around the ethics involved in the sweat lodge and, and the things leading up to it. But so many times in business and in life is that if you assume that everyone is operating like you do, or if I put it first person, I assumed naively that the people who I was engaging with had the same ethics and were as trustworthy as I would be in that situation. And that um, has proven to not be 100% my experience clearly. And yeah. I won't now, but there are other instances, either in the business world or in, in intimate relationships or even friendships. Yes. We're not taught to think critically and we are encouraged to defer to people who appear older, wiser, more educated, more authoritative than we are. That's the structure of the culture in which we live. It's what's called so-called meritocracy, right? That we look up to people like you say, who earn money, for example, or who have stature. And we, we defer because we've been trained to defer. Look at school. Look at parenting. We are trained to defer to authority. We are trained to defer to leaders. And so without the critical thinking and with the training in submission to power and control, and we live in a culture that's built on those structures, then when we are seeking, like you say, we're vulnerable because we don't know how to discern what's going on with the people we are considering as to respond to our need. So we've put isolation on yeah. the number one on the list. I yeah. feel like some of these other things that we've brought into the conversation may point us to some of the other aspects of power and control. Where would you like to go next? Well, I think Maybe emotional abuse might be the next. So I will say that we're making reference to the Duluth model of the wheels of power and control that have, were developed in the domestic violence movement that identified, because part of what we look at as violence is that it's hitting, that it's physical harm. But in fact, the way that the wheel of power and control is constructed is the outer hub is the physical violence. But there are tactics of power and control that and in fact, many of the women um, that exist within the hub of the wheel of physical violence and many of the women that I worked with when I was supporting women in recovery from domestic violence will say, and it's in all the literature, that what hurt the worst was what they did to your mind and not what they did to your body. Mm. And so this emotional abuse, the gaslighting, the intimidation, the threats, the coercion, the power plays, the way that things were sold to people in the wellness industry, all these things show up in domestic violence, also show up in our experience, can show up in our experience, because it's exploitative 
as you've pointed out, it's profit above people. And that is the power these vulnerabilities are exploited, that we are muscled into buying more, spending more. The prospect of enlightenment is held out to us. We are told that it's just a mindset issue if we don't want to spend the money on the next level. We are the stall or the belt or the this or that if we cop out on those things, that there's something the matter with us and that it isn't actually an empowered choice to say no, that th those are coercive, all kinds of coercive and abusive techniques on an emotional and psychological level that we see showing up in these high control and coercive culty groups. And I see like some of them are rather subtle as well. Now, yeah, being told that having it framed at the empowering choices, yes, I think it is subtle at first until you start to see it. It's really subtle because what happens to you if you say no, then you become isolated. You don't get to participate with the group in the next thing or get called up on the stage to be trotted out to to be shown as a yes person and something yeah. to aspire to and, and acquire status through your yeses what is there a way to draw a parallel example from a more um singular relationship like a, a couple do you have an example of well subtlety there one of the things yeah one of the things that oh, it's like a trope, you'll see it on the internet sometimes, but it's actually very powerful, is watch what happens the first time in a dating relationship or in a friendship relationship, when you, the first time you disagree with them or say no to them, how do they behave? What happens? What are the consequences? And right away, that's your first instance of evaluation around what is the nature of this relationship. And the, it's a biological belonging. I would say group-wise belonging an individual-wise attachment is a biological imperative. We humans are built to belong. We are meant to belong. It's in our biology. So when we get cast out from the group or when we experience conflict with our beloved friend or family member or intimate partner, it elicits such distress in us that the first thing we want to do in many cases, is appease. We want, because in terms of belonging, it's a survival issue, an ancient survival issue, where if we're cast out of the group, we starve and die, literally. So right away, we want to like, ooh, but I got to get back in again so that I can be safe and okay. And same with the attachment relationship. I have to get back in again because as a baby, I would have starved and died if my parent hadn't um, taken care of me. And so that right there, I think, is the individual instance of what happens when you first say no or disagree. And parallel in a group. I got married when I was 44. So I had a lot of years single. And uh. I think that's important watching what happens the first time. But also when things are so new and everyone's putting on their, I think we call it love bombing. So yes. I, I would also say, want to add to that the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. Because... Yeah. There can be a real veneer or facade that is a part of a gaslighting process. Yes, I agree. And so what will happen when you say no is that you uh, get pressure to say yes from love bombing because they'll be all over you about, look how wonderful this is. Doesn't that really make you want to say yes? Doesn't that really make you want to go along? Look at what it would be like. Don't you feel the love? Isn't this wonderful? Aren't you, aren't you feeling like the impact of the weekend? Doesn't that feel wonderful? Wouldn't you want more of that? So especially initially, 
the coercion is through the love bombing as opposed to shitting on you. Because if they shit on you, of course, right away, you're going to you're going to like leave. You're going to be like, I'm not having any of this when we're moving through these aspects of power and control, be touching on the individual, the institutional and the cultural and the way that they show up. We can learn so much about our responses to the culture and the institutions that we're in. So we were going and had already touched on coercion and threats. And that seems to go hand in hand with using intimidation. We're moving from the more subtle, like the isolation tactics to emotional abuse into more overt behaviors. Yes, yes. So intimidation, for example, in an intimate relationship would be physical intimidation and physical threats of harm. And we see very clearly that when we start to leave, and again, this may not be your experience, uh, in your group, and it's a pattern in groups generally that when a person starts to separate from the groups after they've been, so they've gone through the whole love bombing and they're in and they're partway through and they're starting to have concerns and they decide that they want to separate themselves, that intimidation and threats now are the next level of keeping the person where the abuser wants them to be. And so leaving a high control or high demand group, the classic example is Scientology and what happens to people. And there's been all kinds of documentation about that in the world of the harm that is done to people, not even physical harm, but other harms that people experience when they start to want to separate from the group. And we see this in family dynamics when children start to individuate in an unhealthy family. There are negative consequences for them to keep them in the family circle. And for women in a domestic violence, we know that the highest risk of women being killed is in the period where they are leaving. That's the greatest likelihood of a woman being killed in a violent relationship, abusive, intimate relationship, is either when she's leaving or immediately following having left. Because the stakes are higher. And so we see the intimidation and the threats that start to come out. There's a pattern of explosive behavior in relationships where at the top is the explosion, right? There's the big blowout, something happens. And then there's the relief that's experienced in what they sometimes call the honeymoon period, where there's a kind of a reconciliation or at least an absence of tension. Then there's the period during which the tension builds and builds and builds. And the person experiencing it knows that the blow up is going to come. And then the blow up comes. And this explosive cycle, this is called in the domestic violence field, called the cycle of abuse. And what will happen is you'll experience this cycle one time and the explosion will be minimal. And the distance between this one cycle and the next one might be years. Like in my relationship, initially it was years. And the stakes were very low the first time. But as time goes on, the abuse becomes more overt and more dangerous and the cycles occur closer and closer together. And so we can see that happening too in groups, of, situations of power and control in, in groups where as a person starts to pull away and as the relationship develops, the abuse becomes more overt and more ongoing, whereas initially it's less so. I'm listening to what you're saying and what's happening is different relationships that I've had over time and not just anything related to Spiritual Warrior and the Sedona Sweat Lodge, but I'm flashing back through former bosses, former friendships, 
former romantic partnerships. And it's jarring to think about because although I got away, I didn't have any of this language around it. And it wasn't ever easy to end that relationship or job or whatever it was. And I imagine it's possible that someone listening might be having that same experience. So from your perspective, Shulamit, let's take a time out and just integrate what we've talked, what we've talked about so far, which I've been keeping a list is the isolation, the emotional abuse, coercion and threats. And we were talking about intimidation and we've been trying to guide the conversation from the one-to-one relationships that are most intimate to us all the way up through institution and culture. It's overwhelming. So let's pause there. What do you have to offer from the point of view of taking care of yourself in these situations where people are becoming aware and self-aware of the situations that they've either been in on the receiving end or that they may have intentionally or unintentionally participated in? So I'll answer that question in a second, but I want to make a preface first, which is to recognize that as a listener, you may not have heard this information before and that this may be contextualizing for you something that the pieces could be falling into place for you in your life. Hearing about putting these things together as a whole in a pattern and you're seeing something that you didn't see before and the enormity, I want to acknowledge the enormity that might be for you hearing this as a listener to the podcast. And two things can happen. I remember the enormity of, and I think I might've mentioned this last on the last podcast, when I was in my own recovery and my therapist named what had happened to me as trauma. And two things happened. One was like, oh crap, no wonder right? This is actually a really big deal. So there was like a kind of a validation. But then there's also, and I think you'd mentioned this in the last episode, this idea of like victim, of seeing what happened to me and acknowledging the reality of that and the the sense that it can have of attack on the self to acknowledge that this is what really happened. And this is what prevents a lot of people from entering their recovery is being unwilling because of the enormity to actually make the connections between the pieces. And so in terms of self-care, and this is the thing that I offer to everybody I have ever worked with, always independent of what the issue is or the context in which we are working. And if you're listening, you won't see me, but I'm placing my hands palm down one on top of another on my chest, on my upper chest, my heart space, I invite when the enormity hits that you can offer yourself some kind of kindness, some kind of gentleness. And I'm feeling the emotion of that even for myself right now. Like Mm. I'm having tears in my eyes and my throat is getting a little close. Just the enormity and how difficult. And no wonder you're feeling what you're feeling. No wonder you're struggling the way you're struggling. No wonder this is difficult. Of course, how could it not be, right? This move of just of tenderness and kindness toward yourself as you start to see what's happening 
and you start to wonder what's next and what can I do, 50% of the distress of every person I've ever worked with can be alleviated with this gesture, this stance of kindness toward yourself. Because what that does is it regulates the nervous system so that then you can start to make choices. You can start to engage your creative problem solving. You can start to ask for help. And that would be, those are the next steps. Would it be fair to say that when we're in this state of activation or trauma or nervous um, system dysregulation? Dysregulation. Yeah. Thank you. I was, I was like, what's the opposite of regulates that I had written down? <laughs> that it is more difficult or impossible to access the creativity and those parts of our minds and our physiology as well as our minds? Yes. So when we're in distress, our prefrontal cortex literally goes offline. It stops communicating with the rest of the brain and the body. And what we have left is only the emotion center. And the emotions are not bad. They're just not the complete story. And so it makes it difficult for us to have a holistic response to the situation when we're running on emotions only on the fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. And Relationships of power and control in coercive groups and also one-on-one -on -one count on the fact that when we are dysregulated, we can't think straight. When I listened to our first conversation this morning, one of the things that was there, as you mentioned, was a distinction between the mindset of victim and, and being a victim of abuse. And we had it on our list of things to come back to. Yeah. So this seems like the perfect time. Maybe I'll start us off with a slice of my story, the public story, as it is. The situation that I found myself in the Sedona Sweat Lodge and before and after, because I was actively embracing what were positive reasons for me at the time, the entire process, the entire journey. And I refused to look at myself as a victim because I survived. I didn't die. And there were three very well-defined victims who couldn't define themselves anymore. And so that survivor limbo together with survivor's guilt and feeling responsible for not being enough of a disruptor, like there were so many reasons why I could not put myself into the role of victim. And so looking back and in some of the things that I'm sorting through right now, I'm seeing that that probably delayed my recovery and delayed my true empowerment. Having been in some conversations recently via Yanya Lalich's workshops that she's putting on with Beth Mataneer and Sally Martin, some of the conversations around um, this type of delayed healing amongst people who have left cultic dynamics and cults and the layers of having people in the public and media having opinions about the experience only served to amplify all of that at the time. I like the term harm because I think it's a helpful one in this situation. 
I used to say I want to distinguish between the fact of being victimized and the fact of being a victim because someone did the victimizing. Somebody did cause harm and I was the receiver of that harm. But I think harm is a more useful word because it's less loaded than victim. And you can say I experienced harm at the hands of this harm was done to me by so-and-so harmed me. It's easier to say that than to say I was a victim of. It's really important to name that harm was done, to say what happened. You're, I agree with you that it's, that is, for me to be able to not name the meaning associated with what I had experienced prevented me from taking the next step of understanding, naming, and then understanding, and then unpacking. And so finding a way, as you say, to acknowledge what actually happened in whatever way that works for you is pivotal. Because it's, I, I hate to use the medical model as an analogy, but it's, if you don't know, you don't have, if you don't know you have cancer, you can't get treatment for it. You just know something's wrong and you don't know what to do. Naming is a powerful thing. So naming that harm was done and that you were harmed is a pivotal step for sure. And how do we hold in this culture that I experienced harm and I'm still a strong, capable, competent person? Like for me in my relationship, the abusive relationship I experienced, I, I went into it identifying as a feminist. And like, how do you be a feminist and still be in an abusive relationship? Like it seemed like unthinkable, but we live in a world that teaches us that there's, it's black and white, one or the other. And in fact, the work of trauma recovery is the work of integration, right? Trauma is from one point of view, disintegration and trauma recovery is integration. And part of my work is to integrate. Yes, you can be a feminist. I was a feminist and still was harmed. I still experienced a relationship of coercion and control. Because feminism doesn't, doesn't, isn't, doesn't inoculate me against these tactics. They don't, because unless you're trained to see the tactics, you don't know they're happening. And this is part of uh, why education and on these dynamics is so incredibly important. And as, as this, the podcast has had three phases, the early phase where I was doing this work and the middle phase where it, I was trying to find positive leaders and positive books and, and so forth. And which is why I insisted on reading every single thing. But also it was a reflection of where I was at on that healing journey. Even if I wasn't, if I wasn't a hundred percent acknowledging the harm or the victim. And I'm not so sure, like, I would actually like to help be a part of normalizing a few of these ideas that society shames us for, one being cult, the other being victim. Those are big themes right now. I think I'm not disagreeing with you because I do think being able to sit and reflect on something that's going on, whether it's in business, in, in anything we are doing in our lives, in our personal relationships, and being able to acknowledge this is harming or that person is harming me is hugely powerful. But I also think it's okay to be a victim. What's not okay is to not get help and to not integrate it. And we don't always feel or have the power or resources to do that. But that part's not okay. Well, I think the shaming and blaming is part of the culture of coercion and control in which we live that, that actually perpetuates the very abuses 
that you and I are calling out today. And because putting the blame where it belongs, like you talked about in your Nine Perfect Strangers essay and podcast, right, where the victim becomes the joke, people say, why didn't she leave? Nobody ever says, why do they hit? Why did why do men hit women? Why do men abuse women? The question is always, why didn't she leave? And the very misdirection is gaslighting that perpetuates who's really responsible and what really needs to change. Given the current circumstances, it is on you and me as individual people who've experienced harm. There is no choice for us but to get ourselves out of it on our own and to reach out for help because that's the culture in which we live. But what's truly part of why naming it for what it is helps reveal what's truly going on and helps reveal where the real issue is not that we stay, but that rather the real shame should lie with the abuser. But we, because we live in a culture that dis, it's a racket, it's a feelings racket, which is an old term from transactional analysis, which is a very 1970s, was very popular in the 1970s. It's called a feelings racket, where the person who should be having the feelings isn't. And those feelings are carried by everybody else in the system. And that allows the person to get away with what they're doing. And this is this whole issue around victim is another kind of feelings racket where the individual is meant to carry is the shame and blame is placed on the individual, which obscures what's really happening and then protects and perpetuates it. Yeah. And does more harm. I'm thinking back to, to some of my earlier inquiry. And, and as you were speaking about self-care, a couple of light bulbs were going on for me where in the early years and when I after my five-year hiatus from all things personal development, coaching, and so forth. And then I came back into it when, in 2015, let's say. And one of the very early things that I wrote and, and put on my website as a downloadable were, was, I'm going to forget what it's called right now, but it, it was seven strategies. But what was in there when I go back to it is every single self-care healing strategy that I employed post-trauma. And so yeah. I was putting together my own trauma recovery program without realizing that it was a trauma recovery program. And then that morphed into the, the summer of self-care and the winter of self-care programs that I put on. And I love those programs. I'm not doing them right now because I feel a need to step away from the self-help industry and detach it from this podcast so this podcast can stand as a critique of the industry and a critique of the, the systems that disempower us so that we can truly free your inner guru. But I'm thinking back to all of the books that I read and the resources that I found helpful, and it's making me want to pull them out and just... and bring them forward in a different way via the leadership community, because that's a very low stakes environment for everyone involved. It's not a huge, it's de designed to be very low barrier to entry and exit. And that is my rally cry against the typical coaching business model. All of that to say is I think that when we look at the self-care movement as it came in and it is I bristle every time I hear it being critiqued because I, I don't think that we should be discouraging people 
from self-care. I do I think it got hijacked into yes. a huge profiteering racket to pull a word from you? Absolutely. It, it, but it is so important that we have practices of self-compassion. Right. Self-compassion, because trauma, one of the primary trauma wounds is shame. And shame perpetuates all kinds of maladaptive survival behaviors. It's at the root, right? Because what we do, when we shame ourselves, we're basically perpetuating the abuse. We're abusing ourselves on the inside, which of course makes sense. And it also hampers our recovery. And the antidote to shame is this self-compassion, self-kindness. And if that's the one thing a person can do, that's where I would recommend starting across the board for any kind of recovery of any sort from anything is this move of kindness towards self. In 2015 or 16, I was taking a trip to New Brunswick to have my third or fourth week of workshops with, with Freeman Patterson, who is a Canadian. Oh, I know um, Freeman Patterson, yes. Yeah, he's one of my mentors. This will be in the memoir, everybody, but this is just the slice I want to take out of it. I was going there. My dad had died recently. The move back to Toronto was uh, traumatic in its own way. And I, I knew I needed to go on a photography week. It's so, heal it, it's so healing for me for so many reasons. And so I booked myself at a workshop with Freeman Patterson. Before I left, I was like, all right, I'm going to take one book with me. And I went to my shelf. And I did one of those spiritual things of just letting whatever books spoke to me on the shelf. And I grabbed um, the book Power Versus Force. Are you familiar with that, that book? No. No. So it's uh, David R. Hawkins. And it's one of the, it's, it, I was surprised by the choice. So I took it and I was like, all right, I guess you're coming with me. I brought it on the plane. As we were flying, I took the book out and I flipped open to... I, did the same kind of thing and just say, all right, because it's not what you would call light reading by any measure. And I flipped it open and on the page that was right there was, was a whole description of shame. And exactly what you just said is, is describing shame as the lowest vibration on this scale of consciousness. It is the closest to death is the way it's positioned in terms of human emotion. And that simple kindness to oneself is the greatest antidote there is to shame. That self-compassion has the, the power to upend and uproot shame. And that's what I took into that week with me and ended up doing a whole exploration, culminating in a ritual in the forest where, because I couldn't take pictures, <laughs> I shot so little that week. It's really interesting to look back, but I put my... I spoke about it um, with someone at the retreat. I spoke about it with, with Freeman. And one of the things that I did was I created a, a little ritual for myself and went out to the forest to, to let the big, black, heavy, dark feelings go. Was it instantaneous? It, it felt beautiful and it's wonderful to think about right now. But it was definitely a marker on my journey to accept that that this was still going on and that I had to counter it with something approaching self-care and self-compassion. Yeah. 
And I'm with you on this reclaiming of the victim. I would like for all of us who've experienced harm to get to the place when somebody says or implies that we're a victim, that we can say, yeah, and so what's your point? We turn a blind eye on ourselves, but others turn a blind eye as well because it's uncomfortable. Yes. And it's in their interest. Judith Herman wrote the feminist classic on trauma. It's called Trauma and Recovery. And if I would recommend very strongly, if you're interested at all about trauma and recovery, that you read it because it is the classic book in the field. And she talks about how bystanders and witnesses have a vested interest in not seeing what's happening because it's a call to act. To do so would be a call to action and they don't want to change. They don't want to put themselves at risk in any kind of way. No. Isn't that one of the saddest mm -hmm. things I've ever heard? Yeah. But the status quo has great power. Even over those of us who don't endorse it, it still has great power. So let's talk about the status quo then, shall we? Do you think things are improving? If you were to look at our culture and institutions over the course of the last 10 years, five years, two years, we'll be marking a two-year pandemic anniversary coming soon. My thinking has shifted a little bit about this recently. So my beloved, who is 65 years old, he's 10 years older than I, he says there's great hope, but I mostly have thought that there is not much hope. And every time I tell him how hopeless I'm feeling, he will say, no, there's great hope. Noam Chomsky, who's somebody I respect a great deal as well, is a really a thinker far more profound than I about these things. He also has hope. As I reflect on where we are now, what comes to me is that while this seems to me like a period of great hopelessness, of great collapse and distress and disaster, I know that sometimes from these breakdown places come miracles. And I believe in the possibility of miracles. And I believe in the possibility of the life forward impulse in all living things. An analogy I think is very beautiful is a tulip bulb. If you plant the tulip bulb upside down, it knows where the light is and the, the plant will come out of the bottom of the bulb and curve around the bulb and head up toward the soil and the light because that bulb knows which way life is. And I believe that every human being, every living being has that life forward impulse. And I believe in the power of that life forward impulse. And so it's possible that might be what comes of this. And it's also possible that it might not come in my lifetime. That feels like a sad thought. And yet I sense some great power behind what you're saying. And I think it's, I've, in the, in my recovery journey, one of the things that I have, uh, it's, there's a contradiction that I'm grappling with right now. And the contradiction is the systemic narcissism that we are living in and self-care and self-compassion. So sometimes I think what I'm hearing, focus on your own self-awareness journey, focus on what is life-giving for you, focus on self-growth. And I think that the hyper-individualism that can develop out of that thinking has done harm. And yet society as a whole culture as a whole and institutions don't 
evolve or change unless the individuals within them who rise to positions of influence evolve or change. Yes and no. Two things I want to say about that. First of all, in an individualistic culture, we think that things stops with the individual. But in fact, and there's nothing wrong with the individual, but the problem is that we look at that as the whole story and it's not. Because first we have to be well enough, but then after there's something that happens next, that's not the end of the journey. And I think that's part of the problem. Because of the individualization, we don't work with teachers who have a systemic view, who have a critical view, who understand uh, systems and structures and then say, okay, so now that you're well enough, your next step in your healing is to facilitate healing in the world to the capacity that you are able. However, I would say, as a, I espouse principled nonviolence, so I'm trained in Kingian nonviolence and Gandhian nonviolence, and as an, I also identify as an anarchist. So I disagree with your stance that we have to rise to power within the institution and change the institution. What I think works most effectively, and I think what history bears out, if we look at the history of nonviolent direct action in the world, the way Gandhi teaches it is that you need a destructive program and a constructive program. And so that nonviolence is not a tactic, it's actually a principle that informs how you approach things. So you, this is the Gandhian, be the change you want to see in the world. The constructive program is building the world in which you want to live. It's not changing the institutions that currently exist, it's actually abandoning those institutions, which by implication will then collapse, and building the world and devoting yourself there. I think actually that part of what has co-opted social change movements now is that we have been taught that it, the problem is who's in power and if we just get the right people in power, things will change. Well, in my opinion, Barack Obama's experience as uh, president of the US shows the lie of that because things did not change. The same with Clinton, things did not change. And Trudeau, things did not change significantly with the quote unquote right people in power. What we need to do is abandon the current systems and structures of power and institutions and create ones that are powerful, in which we are all leaderful, that serve us and serve life. And that's the way that change is created, in my opinion, and in the way that I've been trained. So to, uh, thank you for that. And we don't disagree and at all. It's the grapple, like it's the grappling with contraindicated truth, otherwise known as nuance. As I'm listening to you and going back to the theme of the conversation, is that what you just said could be applied on any level of the relationship as we've been exploring. It doesn't mean wrapping yourself around and doing so much self care so that you can tolerate an unhealthy situation in your home life. That's the equivalent of adapting to an institution or, or a system that isn't going to work. And, and I can't remember where I first heard this, but it seems to me like there are ideas here and truths here that in order to be true, they do need to work on all levels. Yep. 100%. Then it becomes now what? Right? Like yes. now what? Yes. At some point, we need to wrap, but I would like, before we do that, I would like to open the mic to you on just some thoughts about this conversation, what your hopes for a listener might be, and then we can bring it to a close. I have two hopes because I see these as two big 
problems in the world. One I talked about, and that is the self-kindness. My wish is that every person could cultivate the capacity for kindness toward themselves. And my second wish would be that we could all learn to think critically and see systemically, that we could learn to take off the individualistic glasses or leap out of the individualistic water in which we are swimming to think and see systemically. Because I think calling a thing, seeing what's actually happening, empowers us then to do something about it. If you paused, I was going to ask, how do we do that? And it seems like calling a thing a thing is a part of that. Is there anything more you can offer on how do we do that? Or how do you do that? One of the most easily accessible ways right now is in anti-racism education, where many of the opportunities for learning in community, I would recommend don't read a book, don't take a class, engage in a community of learning with a teacher who teaches you to see how racism exists systemically and structurally. And that will, when you start to think systemically and structurally in one way, then you will be able to generalize that to other instances in the world. That's an easy point of access right now because there's just a proliferation of anti-racism learning communities. You could take a Kingian nonviolence training. You could take a critical thinking class in a sociology department. It's really the engagement with the material and applying the theory to mm. life that is where the learning occurs. I love reading, but a, a coach I worked with once called it edutainment because it doesn't result in change. It's really engaging in community with this learning and applying it in life. It's applied like what we used to call on-the-job training. It's learning as you do it that I think mm -hmm. is the most powerful way to see systemically. For people who are in a position where their hands are occupied and they're listening, you're seeing, can you spell Kenyan training? K-I-N-G-I-A-N. So Dr. Martin Luther King, it's uh. his... There's a whole network of Kingian nonviolence trainers and trainings around the world. They're relatively easily accessible and you just have to Google Kingian nonviolence and you'll find it right away. Well, Shulamit, I want to thank you. This has been challenging. It's been thought-provoking. It's been emotional and very revealing and I think practical in its own way, which is a great chord to, to strike with this audience and with me as a human being. So I appreciate you and I appreciate you mm -hmm. for coming on here to, to tackle some really difficult topic areas and doing it with such humanity. Thank you. This has been an interesting experience because as the entrepreneur's therapist, I talk on topics. I mean, this is what speakers do. We prepare material and we present it. And this was this conversation, the two conversations with you have been uh, more uh, opportunities to articulate and explore than sharing what I've already thought out. And so it has been a really stimulating and demanding and enjoyable opportunity to think through things with you out loud. Thank you. My pleasure.